Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Not every M&A deal goes bad. Some go well sometimes, some don't go bad. When they do go bad, though, they can be pretty spectacular. Welcome to Money Beats Book Club. Hope everyone's having a good time out there. Uh, if you've been following us, you know that we've been doing this periodically. We take a look at some uh, interesting business books. We get our reporters together. We all read it. Then we discuss it. And if we're lucky, we get the author on. And that's what we have done today. Today's book, this month, is this, it's almost like the monthly book club, right? Right? More or less. More Quarterly. Or less. Quarterly yeah. book club. At least. Okay. Uh, <laughs> The name of the book is Deals from Hell, M&A Lessons That Rise Above the Ashes. The author is Robert Bruner, and we'll speak with him later. But to discuss for book club proper, what we have today is we have uh, myself and Stephen Grosser, of course. Grosser, how are you? I'm doing great. This was your book. And we also have Money Beat reporter Ben Eisen. Mr. Eisen, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paul? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, IPO reporter Maureen Farrell. Maureen, how are you doing? I'm good. Happy to be here. This is my inaugural book club. Oh, you haven't been in one yet? No, I have not. Wow. I'm very excited about All it. All right, good. And on the phone, because he could not get out of book club, markets reporter Aaron, Aaron Kurloff. Uh, what's up, man? I'm doing fine. How about yourself? We're doing all right. Uh, listen, Grosser, this was your book. You get to kick it off. Well, I, I would just kick off by saying M&A, you've heard a lot of talk over the years, like 70%, 80% of you know deals fail. Um, this book sort of, while called Deals from Hell, doesn't actually – isn't anti-deal. It is very much positive deals. It realizes – that you know, deals can provide returns for shareholders, can build businesses, but on the other hand, if you make mistakes, um, you you don't execute them properly, um, they can fail. And he and he, I think he looks at some of the biggest deals on record, and goes through them and looks at you know what went wrong. Yeah. Um, and I I think that's you know from a it was. Dennis Berman, my current boss and former boss, he uh, you know he recommended this book. He actually wrote a book review back in 2007 for the Wall Street Journal on this. He recommended this book in 2007, just as we were launching a blog that was going to be all things deals. And uh, you know, and it was, a, it was a, a very informative book for me when I read it. And I've sort of passed it along. Maureen can attest this to you know fellow uh, deal journal and money bee bloggers who cover deals um, as something that you know that can help inform. Their reporting, you know, it's funny. This um, the idea of, of of the failed deal. It's um, you know, there's a lot of them out there, even though not all deals fail. Uh, and and there's ten case studies in this book. But um, you know, I think when we all think of failed deals, there's like one in particular that everyone. Come, that everyone you know thinks of first, and that's AOL Time Warner, which the biggest deal mm-hmm. of all time. Is it though, or it was? Yeah, it it was, was then the biggest was deal, the time. Yeah. right? I, I or, believe it still is. Oh wow, okay, and and right, it imploded spectacularly, and of course that's a, a chapter of this book, but it's only one of ten of the the, the failed deals. So um, it's interesting that there's just so many different ways that these things can implode. And I think the perspective you get on the AOL Time Warner deal and others is also the option to do nothing at that point. And the competitive pressure, like they didn't have AOL and Time Warner, probably didn't 
have a real option to do nothing and just sit there. And I thought he he framed that really well. Right, and so just the backdrop there that that AOL stock price went up so much during the dot com boom that it was sort of I think he kind of described it as this like inflated stock. It was like inflation basically, and and uh, you know if the if the valuation of the company uh, went up that much, they just had to do a deal or it would just deflate eventually. And the landscape was shifting like so quickly under both companies' feet. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it took a year to close. Mm-hmm. And when they announced the deal and when the deal closed, it was a very, very different world. Um, I believe it was uh, 2000, early 2000 was announced. And it was, two, you know, early 2001 when it was closed. And um, I believe, when did the uh, when did the NASDAQ peak, Paul? March of 2000, early yeah. March of 2000. So the, so the slide in the stock market during that year already. Yeah. I, you know what? The thing I remember about that deal is is I was at Dow Jones Newswires when that happened in 2000, and and we broke that story. Yeah. We actually nice. we, we won. And I remember the, the president of Dow Jones at the time was Paul Ingracia, and he I remember him walking through the newsroom beaming like the proudest father because everybody realized what a, what a huge – just you know, ground shaking deal that was, and it was a big, big deal, and we broke it. Everyone was really happy about it, and it just—it was clear at the time that that was going to be a, a, a era defining deal, for good or for bad. But it was going to be that kind of a deal. Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of things interesting about the deal, too, and this gets back to the book. First of all, it was an all stock deal, mm-hmm. um, and those tend to. Um, <laughs> you know, have a high degree of failure. And I think that's because of the price that's usually paid. Um, and that leads me to the next thing. It came at the peak of the market, right. as, we, as we pointed out. Within months, the NASDAQ had peaked and would then proceed to slide. I believe the Dow and S&P were, if, were already sliding or yeah, they just were. about to right, start right. sliding <laughs> when that deal. And one of the things I think we've talked about on this podcast a lot, and he, you know, sort of discusses this in the book is they were not in the same business one mm-hmm. was a distribution AOL one was a content provider and those vertical deals oftentimes have you know have issues and also that I mean one thing that struck me is that the breakup fee I think was particularly large for AOL I might get this wrong but I think he said something like 4.1 billion dollars which at the time was that, that that's got to be wow. a lot I mean I'm not I'm not a deals reporter here but but uh, it just seems like pretty, pretty rigidly defined deal that that uh, you know uh, that have, has a lot of implications if one party wants out, right? And the lack of a collar too. Like I know those are not used that often, but if the stock price, there's nothing to like harness the stock price. That if AOLs went down dramatically or Time Warner's, which obviously AOLs did, um, nothing to lock it in at all. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things too, I mean, in the, this is why I mean, I'll say two things first. One of um, Potash of Saskatchewan. I remember when BHP made a bid for that deal, and the reason that resonates with me is it, it was the assignment I was given that day, and I was supposed to find um, a restaurant that was located next to the the headquarters and tried to talk to you know the manager the owner of the restaurant or some employees and talk about were they concerned 
about the likelihood of the headquarters leaving, this company leaving Saskatchewan. And, of course, the Canadian government was very concerned about them losing another national sort of um, another one of their big national companies. And the deal fell apart. And I not to, you know, I I failed in trying to get, um, you know, someone to talk to me on the phone. But that's when we talk about how a deal can affect more than just the employees, the shareholders, the, and the executives in a company. It can infect a whole community. I, have Have we heard from uh, Kurloff yet? No, yeah. we haven't. <laughs> we brought. We, well, we made the poor guy call in from home. We haven't even talked to him. But well, I was gonna I was gonna jump in on the uh, on the business conditions changing and uh, at the same time as companies being forced into the deals. Because I saw that as a thread that uh, that sort of went beyond the AOL Time Warner deal in this book, and in fact, all the way back to the Penn Central merger that starts the thing, uh, where basically the same thing happens. Like the railroads are all merging, so they sort of have to make a deal with somebody. Um, and then while they do it, conditions uh, on the ground and the economy change, and now they're now the idea that that put this whole thing together is no longer valid. Well, I mean, in that case, too, I mean, the decline of the railroads had been going on since, the you know, right after World War II. I mean, the, their glory days were in the 1920s. And the fact that this was it, it was first announced in 1957. Um, they first like publicly talked about the fact that they might do that. Those two railroads might do the deal. And then it wasn't until 68 that they actually, you know, consummated the deal that a lot of things can change a decade. Right, I guess that's true. If you wait ten years, um, <laughs> but yeah, that blew up in a year, so you know that worked out so well. And I also think they had two separate teams. You know, like this is what this is sort of what I was one of the things I wanted to sort of get out of my rambling talk that Paul caught me off on before was the Sorry, fact I was trying to bring curl off. So <laughs> one of the things you also see in deals is you know is the integration. It's not just once you announce the deal. It's not just the price at which you announce the deal and the, or the strategy behind underpinning the deal. It is then you have to execute on it. The CEOs need to not, you know, just walk away. They need to execute. And if you have two companies and this, the, the, you know, these two railroads were not the only companies that had this, that have been competing for years and years, oftentimes that integrating that culture can be very difficult. And yeah. and that can lead dysfunctional to management teams is another theme that mm-hmm. runs through this thing, and I think that's I think that yeah. that, that really no. hits it. And I think as to why. Yeah, and I, th- I think one good example of, of uh, well, I guess all of these themes, because it seems like all of these deals kind of have some elements of the same mishaps, but uh, the Sony-Columbia merger, this was, Sony was, I guess, then in the 1980s, the maker of the Walkman, I believe. Spoken like a millennial. I, I don't like I don't ben know Eisen. of this Walkman, but, but I've heard of it. <laughs> uh, they decided to buy a movie studio. Columbia was kind of struggling at the time. Uh, and then the business conditions were changing, and and the the movie industry was transitioning towards these these Bet the Ranch blockbusters, and, and Columbia wasn't all that well positioned for that. And then Sony kind of put in a management team. It was these... These two guys that sp- that that kind of ran up the tab a lot on on uh, on the company. They they were uh, not necessarily. They didn't really juxtapose with the culture of the company, and um, you know that that in itself totally different industry. Uh, but you know, it's like the same sort of. And it, and it also happens. it also falls into the same thing. I mean, you have a company that makes Walkmans, 
what why are they getting into the movie business why are they getting into the you know right mm-hmm. synergies man synergies yeah. I, well and that's the problem is you don't have the synergies i mean one of the reasons why buying and trying to buy market shares you can also you have synergies and that means you have a little bit more flexibility a little bit more room to screw up if the deal you know doesn't go wrong uh doesn't go right but what i thought was pretty interesting when you, and especially when you think of m&a versus creating something organically was like the idea behind the deal sounded a lot like I'm not completely, but you could think of like Apple. The way that they describe what what they wanted to do with it was like own the con- the hardware and the content that was put on it. So obviously, Apple did that on its own, but like it seemed like a similar thesis. But they don't own the content for the most part. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Apple has licensing agree- agreements, and the and the record labels still make the content. Fair, fair I mean, point. They, now, yeah. now you're not wrong in bringing that up, like. That like Apple, Amazon, Netflix. That Netflix is a perfect example of this. This is their their distribution company that has moved from just you know letting you stream video to also creating video. But they've been doing it organically, and they haven't done a big merger, mm-hmm. um, you know, as of yet to buy that. And the same thing with Amazon. Amazon has been uh, doing that, but. There's been a lot of talk about Apple, Amazon, Netflix, all buying a content you mm-hmm. know company. Um, you know, so you, it will be interesting to see if those deals run into the same problem. Didn't didn't you say in that case study that uh, that Coke had owned Columbia before that? Yeah, <laughs> I think I think Coke sold. I, I might be wrong, but I think yeah, Co- I think Coke's Co- Sony. Right, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So Coke failed with the company. Columbia is like they a hot no potato. In the movie. <laughs> well, that, and also I think you know, like there was uh, one of the things I was mentioned the railroad too is you have to remember the 1960s were all about the big conglomerate. I mean, you know, ITT was right, the perfect right. mm-hmm. example of this. It had you know tons of hearings in the late 60s, uh, but they own. <laughs> You know, the, the company that made the like the Levittown houses, I think, was under ITT, and like all a bunch of other sort of random assortment of companies, hotels, Marriott, I think, was under there. I mean, it, it, you know, this yeah. that was the sixties was about all putting them all together, and um, you know, this is this is what M and A does that you put together big conglomerates, and then you get the take fees when you take mm-hmm. them apart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's take a break. When we come back on the other side of this message, we are going to speak with the author of Deals. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. From hell. Follow the Wall Street Journal on your favorite podcast app. Search WSJ on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and any Amazon Alexa device. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat Book Club. And today we're discussing the book Deals from Hell, M&A Lessons That Rise Above the Ashes. The author is Robert Bruner, and he joins us now. Robert, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for inviting me. Oh no, we're really we are glad to have you. Uh, this was this book was Stephen Grosser's choice, and he was very excited to have us read it. He's read it, you know, he'd read it previously, so he wanted us to do this one. So I'm going to open up the floor to Stephen Grosser. 
Well, I was going to say, you know, as I said in the previous segment, Dennis Berman, my then boss and now boss, who also wrote a review of the book um, for the uh, the journal, uh, he was the one who first gave this book to me back in 2007 and told me to read it. And it, it was as I got in, you know, sort of involved in covering M&A, it was very informative. One of the questions, you know, it's called Deals from Hell, but you actually do a lot to dispel the idea in this book that all deals are bad deals. I know having covered the industry, oftentimes people talk about 70, 75% of deals failure. That is not the case, right? Uh, you're exactly right. I think that's a part of the urban legend that uh, grows and grows and grows. It gets past uh, you know, uh, in, in some kind of oral tradition, and it's totally unfounded. And I've seen nothing since the book was published some 10, 12 years ago that would persuade me any differently. The evidence based on over 100 research studies is that uh, M&A just about pays. It's it's not the career-changing, spectacular success that the uh, proponents of a particular deal would like us to believe. But on the other hand, uh, it uh, isn't the 70, 80, 60% uh, persistent failure rate that you hear about. Uh, by and, and I, I reached this conclusion very carefully by trying to define what we mean by failure. And failure in a business or financial sense means failing to reach the return required by investors. And the return required by investors is typically a risk-adjusted rate, and many of the studies uh, adjust for the, the riskiness of a deal. And over these many, many studies, what we find is that uh, the vast majority either equal or exceed the required rate of return. So what this suggests is that M&A does pay, at least it pays at least sufficiently to cover the required returns of investors, and that's good news. Now, uh, there, there's quite a lot of research into the nuances, the nooks and crannies of the M&A field, and we can get into that if you want or we have time. But uh, the, the fundamental idea is I believe M&A does pay. Before, I was just going to go say before we go into some of the deals that you discuss, why did you decide to focus on the failures rather than, you know, the sort of successes? Well, first of all, we know much more about the failures because yeah. they come up into the, the public eye. Uh, they're easier to document. Uh, second, it is useful to look at the failures as a cautionary tale, a reminder to us that this is risky business, that we need to look at why things go wrong, why, why things go bump in the night, as a, as a reminder to us that um, success is, is not, uh, you know, the, the, the present to everybody that uh, we might like to believe it is. You know, what? one thing that, um, you know, I, I I, I was curious to know is, um, you know, this book was published a decade plus ago, right before the financial crisis. And since then, we've had, you know, another, we've had a bust, and then we've had sort of a renaissance in deals. And I'm curious, would you still, would you choose the same 10 deals as sort of the most informative uh, still? Or is there anything that's happened kind of, you know, recently, uh, during this latest kind of deals period that, that, that you found you know, imparts another lesson or some sort of constructive criticism here? I I think the basic ideas presented in the book about how deals go bad when they go bad uh, 
who are entirely applicable to anything we've seen more recently. Um, uh, obviously, we would add financial combinations, uh, combinations of yeah. financial institutions to the list of uh, deals gone bad, uh, and there have been spe- some, some more spectacular technology and telecom deals uh, that would rise into one's consciousness as a reminder. But um, I, I think nothing has come up that would cause me to want to expand or condense or modify the basic framework that I present in the book. Do any of the and have any like new lessons emerged? Um, you know your your sort of six rules of M and A failures. Any anything new pop up, or do you still see deals happen and say, and you know, I see where this is going. This is not going to be good. I think uh, I, I think the episode of two thousand eight to roughly two thousand fourteen simply amplifies in my own mind the importance of context and obviously through the uh, panic of 2008 the global financial crisis uh, we saw an an extraordinary trough in economic performance macroeconomic performance and industry performance in so many businesses and uh, you you saw uh, companies in uh, a variety of different uh, industries, not merely housing and real estate, um, crater. And often a factor in their demise or, or extended episode of difficulty was a deal they made a few years earlier that stretched them in some respect. And, you know, this notion of stretch is extremely important because what stretch does is it tends to strain the resilience of a company, strain the ability of a company to um, to absorb shocks, to absorb uh, setbacks. And in virtually all of the deals from hell I outline, uh, that resilience was absent, and um, it, it takes a global financial crisis uh, to remind us of the value of resilience. So these these uh, these contextual factors prove to be so vitally important in understanding uh, the ultimate failures or, or even the successes. Can you go through some of the I guess the themes of that you found in in these case studies of the ten deals that sort of led to their demise? So the um, the book outlines a range of factors that um, uh, I, I argue appear repeatedly. The um, the uh, deals begin with or the, the the failures typically begin with a shock mm-hmm. of some kind. Uh, I call it business not as usual. Uh, there's a tendency behaviorally, for, uh, research establishes quite well, a tendency among all of us to simply project what we're experiencing today almost in linear fashion into the future. And uh, as we know, uh, stuff happens. Yeah. Problems occur. Shocks hit us that we didn't anticipate. And it's the 
it's the black swan event, uh, in, in the words of uh, Nicholas uh, Taleb and others. It, it's the, the tail risk that we need to be so careful of. And so in all of these cases, a shock occurs, um, and the, the buyer in particular is a company that is complex. Complexity is the second big factor. Uh, complexity matters because it makes it very difficult for people to really understand what's going wrong. Uh, a third factor that uh, appears to be extremely significant and that I just mentioned in reference to the previous question is uh, connectedness or uh, the, the absence of slack to absorb shocks with. Um, tight, uh, tight coupling, in, in the words of engineers, is another phrase that appears. And tightly coupled, tightly coiled, tightly linked systems mean that trouble can travel. Trouble, if it breaks out in one part of an organization, uh, will cascade, will radiate into other parts of an organization. So you see the, the groundwork. There's a shock, there's complexity, there's uh, uh, the inability to absorb uh, the adversity, and then management comes along and, in all of the cases, responds too slowly or inappropriately. Um, the, the inappropriate response could be due to cognitive biases. Uh, cognitive biases are... It's a, it's a, Ten dollar psychological term meaning uh, <laughs> things such as over right. and uh, or denial of uh, of facts or narcissism or or whatever and and uh, um, so those two factors uh, inappropriate management response and uh, um, cognitive biases uh, create just tend to compound uh, tend to amplify the problems. Hey, I want to uh, get Kurloff yeah. in here, Aaron. Uh, we haven't heard from you yet. What uh, do you want? Do you want to lob a question? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I mean, one of the things I, I cover markets here, and one of the things uh, we write about and uh, debate with sources sometimes is what does heavy M and A activity or lack thereof suggest is uh, happening in the markets? Like, uh, you know, what, what is this a sign of? And uh, since we have you here and have the opportunity, I guess, uh, you know, what does it say uh, to you uh, about market conditions if we start seeing more or less M&A um, and sort of where are we today? You know, that, that's a fantastic question as well. <laughs> the book highlights a factor, you know, it, it, it emphasizes the role of context and what's happening in markets. And I associate with M&A waves a phenomenon that we call hot markets, hot markets when things are really boiling away and uh, premium prices are being paid by buyers for target companies. And uh, deals are being done with uh, uh, typically high leverage uh, with, with uh, very little uh, uh, slack uh, for the buying companies. Uh, and that word slack refers to the ability to absorb shocks. Um, typically, uh, in hot markets, the uh, target companies are paid uh, 
very richly, either for their exit from the target or uh, paid richly for their support and involvement in the new company that survives after the merger is consummated. Uh, those would be three of many, many possible indicators consistent with the, the, the peak of an M&A wave. Hey, uh, Robert, I have one question. This might be our last because I think we have to vacate the, the studio soon. But here, here's a question for you. Do you think there will – what are your odds? How about this? What are the odds you think that there will ever be another deal that would merit inclusion in this book? I think the odds are 100%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's what I figured you would say. What? I, mean, I guess one – I guess based on – just uh, – uh, you know, based on, on that question, I mean, I, I'm curious, do you ever see signs that companies are kind of learning these lessons or or, or, is, or is it kind of a cyclical thing that maybe they learn their lessons after one blow up, but, uh, you know, as the economic cycle rolls on, they, you know, start to partake in the same behavior? Memory is short, and <laughs> this is an important yeah. other cognitive bias that uh, there's a tendency of humans to want to, to, to believe in what they want to believe in. And that was, as I said earlier, one of the important reasons I wrote the book, is to create some institutional memory, some market memory, some managerial memory that will um, caution decision makers and boards of directors in the uh, life-and-death decisions they reach in regard to corporate acquisitions. I, I just have one last question, and, and it's sort of a weird one given that it's about, you know, failed deals. But do you have a particular one that was your favorite? Um, well, they're like my children. They're all my favorite. <laughs> but uh, the AOL Time Warner deal is uh, lingers repeatedly in my memory and is uh, applicable. It comes up regularly in my conversations with yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing too that's sort of amazing to me is how that company has continued to be broken apart. I mean, this company that was built from you know the 1980s Warner Communication through time, you know AOL is that in the next Latin the next 15 years they took it all apart. And that's now, exactly right. Well, you know, there I think uh, I argue in the book that uh, that kind of fluidity in uh, in, in corporate M and A and restructuring is probably a good thing. Yeah. Uh, the average man or woman, the investor, probably looks at these deals and says, when will this madness stop? Let's just, why can't companies focus on organic growth, et cetera? And the reason is that we want companies to respond to changes in their markets, to new technology, to, to demographic changes of all kinds, on and on and on. And if if we enshrine, uh, if we... If we uh, uh, constrain companies in ways uh, I think we pay a price in the efficiency of the, the free market system and uh, those those kinds of restrictions don't come without cost. I think ultimately uh, if M&A pays, and I argue it does, uh, the, the periodic waves are something we need to suffer through. All of us need to be more skeptical during the peaks of the times and cycles. Fundamentally, it's the ability of industries and an entire economy to reinvent itself. The name of the book is Deals from Hell, M&A Lessons That Rise Above the Ashes. The author is Robert Bruner. Robert, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. We appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Thank you. And before we let you go, Ben Eisen is going to announce the next book 
that we'll, we'll be doing the next podcast as soon as we all get through it and read it. But Ben, we had a, a heated discussion this morning. What did we decide upon? Yes, it was it was heated indeed. It was but, very uh, heated. We decided on a book that probably a lot of you out there at home have already read, but uh, is a good one nonetheless. Uh, it's called When Genius Failed, The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital Management by Roger Lowenstein. It's a, it's former a, it's journal a, reporter. Former journal reporter. A good inside inside uh, take on uh, the collapse of long-term capital management, which is something that people still talk about today. So I imagine a lot a lot to discuss there. So is that like the is that like the Walkman to you? <laughs> long-term capital. Does do you even know what that means? Do you have any idea? I need to get a cassette a cassette and put it in my Walkman there and, and uh, listen to <laughs> listen to it on tape. That's uh. All right. So anyhow, that is the next book. Uh, If you want to read along with us at home, we would welcome that. And we will talk to you all very soon. Thanks for listening. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.